Magazines of Monsters, episode 87, King Kong from 1933. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne, and welcome. It's the 75th anniversary of King Kong, and one way we're going to celebrate that fact is by bringing you a lineup of films from the same year that Kong made his movie debut, 1933. And we're going to start off, of course, with the eighth wonder of the world himself, Mr. Kong. This original version of King Kong we're about to bring you was made by RKO and was the brainchild of Marion C. Cooper, a producer and director who came up with the idea for this movie during a trip to Africa where he'd gone to shoot stock footage for another movie he was planning. Well, fascinated by the gorillas he saw there, his original plan was to make a movie with an actual simian, which through trick photography would be made to appear giant-sized. But that idea changed when Cooper met special effects man Willis O'Brien. Cooper realized that this film could be done much more effectively with an animated chimp brought to life through the use of a stop-motion photography technique perfected by O'Brien. And if you're a Kong connoisseur, you're probably aware that the size of Kong does change considerably as this film progresses. But if you're a Kong newcomer, do take notice of it, but it's not going to affect the great kick you'll get out of watching this movie. In the beginning, Kong looks to be about 18 feet tall, but once he gets loose on the streets of New York in the latter part of the movie, he looks to be about 24 feet tall or even bigger. That change in scale done to keep the big ape from being dwarfed by the city's buildings. Now, Fay Ray, who plays the object of Kong's affections, wrote in her autobiography that when Marion C. Cooper offered her the lead in this film, he told her, you're going to be working with the most awesome leading man in all of Hollywood. And Faye thought, oh, great, I'm going to be working with Cary Grant. What she got instead was somebody considerably hairier, but she also got everlasting fame. And here's Faye in 1933 with King Kong. Hey, everybody, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here, back with another episode of the show. And this is going to be my final show for 2023. And it uh, is going to kind of mirror 2021 in the uh, way that uh, it's going to be covering some kind of anniversary. Uh, 2021, I finished the year with a bit of a retrospective of universal horror with a big focus on Dracula and Frankenstein, as that was the 90th anniversary of those films, which is hard to believe, but it was. And uh, 2023 is the 90th anniversary of another huge film with a very big uh, star of a movie. Uh, King Kong. And, uh, you know, when you start a podcast and you sign all your uh, paperwork, you are contractually obligated to have a certain guest on anytime you talk about a giant monster. Uh, how are you, my friend, Luke Giaconetti? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't I don't know about that. But uh, thank you very much for, for having me on, Bill. You know, uh, you had reached out to me a while back saying, hey, we're going to cover King Kong for the anniversary. And I'm always up for for talking King Kong and uh, having an excuse to rewatch a film. One of the films I've probably seen most in my life, I would probably say starting at a very early age is the original King Kong. So just glad to be here. An opportunity to talk about the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, this is one I definitely saw at a very young age too. I feel like it used to come on around a holiday, but I can't remember for the life of me, yep. which holiday that was. So I don't know about everywhere, but in the New York area, Channel 9, WOR, out of Secaucus, New Jersey, mm -hmm. would, on Thanksgiving, would play King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, and Son of Kong. And then often on Black Friday, they would play some Godzilla movies. Uh, I think Son of Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Sea Monster, maybe. But King Kong was always on Thanksgiving. 
Um, you know, if you listen to Paul Spataro over on uh, Two True Freaks, he talks about um, March of the Wooden Soldiers, you know, based mm-hmm. in Toyland. Yep. That was on Channel 11, WPIX, but Channel 9 always showed King Kong. And so the thing with King Kong is – so King Kong is my father's favorite film, right? So that was the film that made my dad, like, love monsters, right, and love stop motion and all that. So thus, the original King Kong was a huge influence on my brother and I. So that was, like I said, this is a film I've seen many, many times from when I was a very young kid because dad obviously wanted us to see the movie that he loved, right? Mm -hmm. So that was always a a big thing for me. And we would always, uh, not always, but I do remember watching King Kong, you know, while waiting for turkey or maybe just after turkey, depending on what what time we ate Thanksgiving dinner that year, you know. But, yeah, so I I still do a, a... uh, associated with Thanksgiving, though we haven't watched Kong on that Thanksgiving in some time. Uh, my brother and I routinely post the newspaper clippings on Facebook for the um, uh, for the, the WR showing. Is it a- after the turkey go ape? Is usually what the newspaper clipping said. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, mm, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I actually got both of those channels too when I was a kid, just simply out of the fact that. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania didn't have any decent channels, so they, I guess, you know, imported <laughs> better <Yeah>. channels <laughs> from New York and New Jersey. I definitely had both of those because I definitely did watch uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers on WPIX. That was something we did was I do remember that being on and seeing that uh, being home from school and watching that, too, because I love that movie. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. L- little different context from from King Gong, but yes, a classic in its own right. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious funny movie but yeah there's not a whole lot of humor in king kong from 1933 here though but this is a again like i said huge anniversary here 90 years and you know i feel like people will say about a movie from 20 or 30 years ago oh yeah it still holds up and i think what do you mean still holds up it's not even that old well this movie is obviously very old but i will say uh not only does it still hold up i think it's still one of the best uh giant you know, monster movies uh, that was ever made. Maybe the best, you know, depending on who you talk to. And uh, I think it's mm-hmm. up there if it isn't number one. And I think you can still watch this movie now in 2023 and you can have a blast with it. You know, obviously there are a couple of things that are a little uh, problematic with uh, the sensibilities in the 1933 versus 2023. But putting it in the context of the times, you know, if, if you can do that, uh, this is a great, great movie, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things that it, it is a product of its time. It's a product of 1933 mm-hmm. in all that entails. Right. So there are um, some things that now modern critics will look at it and criticize it for. But that was the norm at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but top to bottom, it's it's a stupendous adventure film. Right. It does mm-hmm. this idea of you've got a film crew and a girl who's now been pressed into being an actress traveling on this treacherous sea voyage, this uncharted island. The island is populated by natives that worship this mysterious monster god. And they take the the gold-haired woman to be the sacrifice of this monster god. And, oh, by the way, there's also dinosaurs on this island. And we're going to – and, and we, we rescue the girl and, and capture this giant monster god and take him back to civilization and put him on show. And he goes on a rampage. If it if it wasn't such a familiar story, it would sound like the greatest adventure novel, pulp novel ever written, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's a very familiar story 
because it's been around for 90 years, but it still works. It still works. And what's amazing about King Kong, you said from a giant monster perspective, is that it was the original giant monster movie. It's the one that inspired all the others, including Godzilla. But at the same time, it also it it deviates from all of the um, generic codified uh, elements that came later. If you watch King Kong and you watch Gojira from 1954, there's some things that are very, very similar, but there's a lot of things that are different, right? So the things Mm -hmm. that became the standards of the genre actually came from a lot of the later films. So King Kong is still very unique in it, in its, the, in in how it handles its star, right? And how Mm -hmm. we're supposed to feel about him, right? Whereas, oh yeah. That, and that's one of the, the great things about King Kong is that, he is uh, – so that's one of the things that, that's really unique about King Kong, right, is that mm-hmm. the titular star, he he's a heavy, but we also feel for him, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's one of the great things about Kong, and that's actually – I mentioned earlier the a follow-up – not a follow-up, but a later film that's usually linked with King Kong, which is um, uh, Willis O'Brien's – one of his later films, which is Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young – He's a straight-up hero, but again, he's a character that we feel for. Uh, it, it's it's a testament, and we'll get into this more. But O'Brien creates King Kong as a living, breathing character, right? He's not mm-hmm. just a monster. He's a character who happens to be monstrous, and thus we, we feel a lot for him. And I think that's why the film holds up. We have this emotional core to the film that ostensibly is a adventure story, a monster movie, a monster on the loose – but it really does have an emotional core to it, which is is why I think it is held in such high regard and still holds up, like you said, the incredibly 90 uh, years after the fact. You know, Miriam C. Cooper and uh, Ernest B. Shodashak, you know, put together a a film that was it, it was what America needed in 1933 in the, in the height of the <laughs> Depression, and it still holds up now. No questions asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you're not kidding. So, all right. Well, let me dive in here. Right. I'll just, you know, read a little bit right from uh, the wiki here that says, you know, King Kong is a 1933 American pre-code. And that's important as well. Yep. Adventure, adventure, horror, monster film. That's quite a genre there. Directed yep. and produced by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak, like you'd said, with special effects by Willis O'Brien. Uh, produced and distributed by RKO Pictures. Uh, and, and the film stars Faye Ray, Robert Armstrong, and Bruce Cabot. They're the three, uh, the, the big names in the film here. But uh, there's a couple of things that I I don't know if I just forgot or they just never occurred to me. And one of them is that Faye Ray got top billing here, yes. which I feel like for 1933, for a lady to get top billing was, I don't know what to say it was unheard of, but pretty darn close, right? Yeah, that that is that is fairly unique. But, you know. The thing, oddly, that there's, there's so many things about pre-code Hollywood that are weird, right? That you look at pre-code Hollywood and then you look at post the Hayes Code, you know? Um, and, and, uh, you know, the Hayes Code was not long after this. Cause the Hayes Code started, I uh, want 1934, like maybe midway through 34. So, I mean, this film was very close to being part of the Hayes Code. So there were a lot of things that, Pre-code Hollywood did that were different, including the way that women were not just portrayed, but the uh, things like that with it getting a top billing. 
So it's, it, I think uh, after the code, that might have become a bit more ingrained, right? But yeah, it is very, mm-hmm. it's very good to me that, that Faye Ray gets top billing because really she's the human heart of this film. You know, as mm-hmm. much as I, as much as I absolutely love Robert Armstrong in this movie. One of my favorite fictional characters of all time, you know, <laughs> is, is Carl Denham. So, uh, but, but Fay Ray playing Ann Darrow, I mean, she's, she's fantastic and she really deserves a top billing. And the thing about Fay Ray is, you know, she did make other films, you know, she was a successful Hollywood actress. This mm-hmm. is the only thing I know her for. The absolute only thing that <laughs> I know. If you ask me, it's like Fay Ray to just King Kong. It's like she made all these other films. I'm looking at her, you know, she's got this huge, I mean, she was in other horror movies. She was in Mystery yeah. of the Wax Museum. She mm-hmm. was in The Most Dangerous Game, which has an interesting connection to uh, King Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was in, uh, uh, you know, just all of these other films, you know, all the way into, um, you know, she, she worked regularly into the up until the war and then came back and started getting smaller roles in the 50s. Only thing I can tell you off the top of my head usually is, oh, yeah, King Kong. You know, so <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how connected Fay Ray is to King Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was in the Vampire Bat as well. So yeah, she had done a bunch of horror movies before you know King Kong ever came around. She was, you know, people say you know she was kind of like the the original Scream Queen uh, for sure. I at least I think she is. So you know, I yeah. think you know she deserves all the credit in the world. And uh, like I said, that was something I thought, oh wow, yeah, that that stood out to me. And then also. You know, and we're not obviously here to talk about the sequel, Son of Kong, but I didn't realize that that was, you know, kind of fast tracked with all the success this had right away. And it came out later the same year. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, they they, they knew they had something. And so that's one of the things about um, uh, the Son of Kong is that it got that's one of the reasons the effects are the way they are. And the effects are a bit more simplistic. Uh, is that it's just a matter of time. Stop motion is one of those things. It takes time. There's no way around it, right? You, it, mm-hmm. When you're filming one frame per, you know, you're filming one frame at a time, you know, you don't have the, the, the you know, it, it, you can't speed that up. It just goes, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, it's, and, and so O'Brien was kind of pressed into, uh, you know, getting things done as quickly as possible. Son of Kong is, is a film I, I enjoy, but recognize that obviously it's not a uh, um, it's it's not nearly on the same level as the first film, sure. you know. But it is a lot of fun, you know. Um, the uh, you know it, and and it's worth it's worth watching. It's only like seventy five minutes or something too. It's a very quick watch, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know. I'm looking at the wiki. It's sixty nine minutes. It's like so you could watch King Kong and Son of Kong in an afternoon and you'd be fine. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, one yeah. thing I did want to—you mentioned real quick—the vampire bat. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lionel Atwill is the star of that one. Another uh-huh. uh, long-time Universal player, especially in horror films. Lionel Atwill. Um, yeah. You probably recognize him, even if you don't realize who it is. Um, but also the vampire bat in the public domain. So you can go on to archive.org or YouTube. You can watch the vampire bat, free and legal. Uh, on because it's in the public domain, so it might be one to fire up next uh, Halloween time if you want to watch some old school black and white horror. Yeah, and I mean, uh, not to uh, you know, uh, sor- sorry listeners, you know, by the time you hear this, it'll be long <laughs> over. But uh, just to, to let you know, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum is going to be the Saturday night uh, Sven Gulli here. So oh. right now, it's like, oh man, 
Nice. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was the, just on. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. The other one, one I mentioned. Yeah. The other one I mentioned was the most dangerous game. Mm. Okay. So Very the most dangerous film, yeah. game made 1932. The production, the the on the production team, Marion C. Cooper, Ernest B. Shodashak. Mm-hmm. Okay. In on the cast, Fay Ray, Robert Armstrong, James Flavin. Okay, who is the captain, and Noble Johnson. Okay, so you got four members of the cast. A lot of the sets for Skull Island are used in the most dangerous game. So they were built on the most dangerous game and then used again on King Kong, including the log bridge. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you ever get an opportunity to watch the 1932 version of the most dangerous game, keep your eyes peeled. It's not hard, but keep your eyes peeled because there's a lot of King Kong in that movie. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like, too, that one, I don't know that I can say that it's public domain, but I know you can find that one on the ready all the time, too. It's always floating around YouTube as well, Most Dangerous Game. Yes, yep. It, it's, and it's pretty good. It's, it's very much, again, it's very much of its time, mm-hmm. right? You know, and there, and there are some people that uh, really dislike dialogue from films in the 30s. Because it's that snappy banner, you mm-hmm. know. I for one love it because it, it's 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 again it's of its time. But uh, the most dangerous game is another one like that with a lot of snappy banner. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And like we said, you know, we'll just jump in here. Uh, Fay Ray is Ann Darrow. Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham. Uh, Bruce Cabot is uh, Jack Driscoll. And uh, like you said, uh, the, the the captain uh, he's a uh, oh. Uh, can't remember his name. Frank something or others. His name. He was Frank. Yeah, Frank Riker is Captain Englehorn. Yeah, and then uh, other than uh, you know, like you said, Noble Johnson. He's the, the the native chief in this one, and you look him up too. He was in a lot of really good movies too. He had a really yes. good uh, crazy career. I, I love uh, looking up his stuff, but um, th- those are really only the main players with like most of the speaking parts and. You know, the most of the, the the main players. That that's really it. So you're really looking yes. at only like five people, right? Yeah, really. And and you know, uh, Noble Johnson's only obviously in the film for a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And Englehorn has a fairly big role in the first act. He's there in the second act, and he is not really present at all in the third act of the film. You know. Yeah, no. So it really is Faye Ray, Robert Armstrong, and Bruce Cabot really do carry this film, and all three of them, I think, do a really good job. You know, Anne Darrow is such an interesting character to me, in that you know she's obviously a a, a young a young uh, you know young woman who's had obviously a lot of things that haven't gone her way. You know, being as if she said she used to do uh, some small extra roles out on Long Island back, you know, back in the back in the day. It wasn't just Hollywood where movies got made. There were films that were produced uh, in Long Island and actually in parts of Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and uh, in other parts of the country as well. And, you know, she's obviously fallen on hard times with the Depression. I love the scene early on when, um, you know, Denham says, I'm going to go get a girl for my show, even if I got to go marry one. And he goes (laughs) on the street. And you see all the women in the soup line, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. It, it's a scene you, you forget about because you remember all the fantastical parts. But this is very much, this was the world outside your window to New Yorkers in 1933. <laughs> 
Now I'll catch a cop. You like that, huh? No, no, I didn't. Let me go. I wanted to, but I didn't. I have an office, these stealers. Dry up. The kid didn't take anything. I uh, didn't, Troy. I didn't. Oh, three people this week. Here, here, here's a book. A book? Scram. yourself. I'm not bothering about you just out of kindness. How'd you ever get into this fix? Bad luck, I guess. But then there are a lot of girls like me. Not many with your looks. I can get by in good clothes, all right, but when a girl gets too shabby... No family? I'm supposed to have an uncle someplace. You ever do any acting? I used to do extra work now and then over on Long Island. Studio's closed now. What's your name? Ann Darrow. Fine. I've got a job for you. Costumes on the ship will fit you. Broadway shops are still open. I can get some clothes for you there. Come on. But, but what is it? It's money and adventure and fame. It's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage that starts at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, wait. I, I don't understand. You must tell me. I do want the job, so but... I, I can't... Oh, I see. Now you've got me wrong. This is strictly business. Well, I only wanted sure. to... Sure. Sure you did. I got a little excited and I forgot you didn't understand. Listen, I'm Carl Denham. Ever hear of me? Yes. Yes. You make moving pictures in jungles and places. That's right. And I picked you for the lead in my next picture. We sail at six. Where to? A long way off. And listen, Ann, I'm on the level. No funny business. What do I have to do? Just trust me and keep your chin up. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so I mean, yeah. That's, that's, that's literally like, you know, within the first couple of minutes of the film, because it does, it starts out just like at New York Harbor, and, you, you know, we see a guy... And uh, he goes aboard the boat that's going to be, you know, uh, heading off on this voyage. And he talks to, uh, you know, Carl Denham and uh, Driscoll and uh, the captain there. And he basically is like a, 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 a talent scout, for lack of a better term, an agent. And he basically says yeah. he can't get any women to just, you know, show up because everything's so kind of mysterious. Like he's walking up to, you know, female actresses and basically saying, hey, do you want to go work in this movie? And they're like, well, what kind of movie is it? And the guy's like, uh, I don't know. Where is it? It's going to be on a boat on an island somewhere. What island? Uh, I don't know. There's just so much mystery around it. And that's when, like you said, Carl's just like, screw it. I'll go out and find a girl myself even if I have to marry one. Yeah. 
he, he where does he go? Right down to the end of the city. And I do like that. You know, they didn't shy away from showing reality there. I mean, obviously, it's a movie about a giant ape, but there was a, a lot of reality in this movie, especially when they were in New York, right? Yeah, for sure. Because it's, again, it, it, it the, I said this film was the film that America needed because it was this larger-than-life escapist adventure. So here they remind you of, of reality, right? And it's like, what do we get here? You get soup tonight, coffee and sinkers in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's just it's just it, it it's hard times on everybody, right? It's hard times, and I love that. So he goes to the news agent, and Anne grabs the or thinks about grabbing the apple, and the guy comes out and is accosting her, and Denim obviously is doing okay because he's his movies seem to make money. Right. Mm-hmm. He says that he goes, they make the, no matter how good of my picture is, you know, cause he's talking about, and one of my favorite lines, because the public, bless him, must have a pretty face to look at, um, that his <laughs> movies could make more money, but it's suggested that his movies make money enough that he can mount this, this entire expedition, right? Mm-hmm. And he gives the guy a buck for the apple, and the guy just goes, a buck? <laughs> and suddenly, all his concerns about his produce go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, gosh, I mean, you figure an apple back then was probably a nickel or a penny even. Yeah. So Bucky was like, man, I'm going to close for the day. I'm going to close early. Yeah. But, yeah. It's funny, too. I think it I, I don't know this for sure, but it almost looks to me like when Denim's looking at the, uh, you know, the, the, the soup line there, like the, the soup kitchen, you know, he sees all these women and most of them are of the um, middle aged or older variety. And he's kind of yeah. just like. Eh, that's not what I'm looking for, and that's you know, like you said, when he goes to that newsstand and meets Anne, and she he doesn't really you don't you don't really get a good look at her from the camera. She has her back to the camera, and you know, obviously, I think they did this on purpose, where then she kind of acts like she's gonna faint a bit, and you know, we we see her face, and of course, that's when Carl sees her face for the first time. Of course, we know what he's thinking. Hey, this is a beautiful woman that's on some hard times. I can get her to be in my movie, right? Yeah. And and his and his holy mackerel, you know, it's uh, because just in case you forgot, it was 1933. And and but but see, that's the thing with Anne, right? So Anne is a a, she is naive, but she's not really that naive, though, because he takes her to the diner, right? And buys her something to eat and buys her a cup of coffee. And he's telling her about this and she's suspicious of him. Mm -hmm. She's suspicious of the fact that he wants to take her on a boat somewhere. Yeah, because that's not normal. It's not normal in 1933. It's not normal in 2023. It's like, <laughs> hey, you want to get in my boat and go shoot some movies? You know, that doesn't sound suspicious at all. Right. You know, but uh, so uh, where to? Oh, a long way off. You know, so the uh, so I, I do like that. She is not so naive because she's a city girl. Right. So she mm-hmm. knows that to, she was looking out for herself and denim. You know, Denim, he does use people because he's a Hollywood guy. He's a movie producer, but he does seem to actually legitimately care about Anne, mm-hmm. you know, and he, and he apologized like, no, I know I came off, you know, he, he apologizes for coming up weird. He's like this. It's an adventure of a lifetime. He wants her to be as excited as he is. Now, yes, it's because he actually needs a girl before he sets off, right? Because mm-hmm. he's decided that whatever the story is, is going to be a girl in this next picture because the critics keep telling me I need a girl in it. So, <laughs> which I love that. I, I love that that's how, that, that's how the film works, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I'm going to go shoot a film about, uh, you know, this legend of this monster on this island. And we'll just have a girl there. He has no <laughs> other actors with him on the ship. Mm-mm. The only member of the acting side of this is Anne. 
Mm-hmm. But he's got it. He's going to figure something. We'll just shoot a bunch of footage and we'll cut something together. It'll be, it'll be perfect, you know. <laughs> and it's not really like he has a big crew, as in there's a big crew on the ship, but yes. there really isn't a huge crew as far as who's going to shoot the movie either because he makes mention of how he used to have a cameraman. And when he was shooting, you know, somewhere in Africa or something like that, a, a rhino came charging at the camera, and the guy ran away and stopped filming because yeah. he didn't trust yeah. him to shoot the rhino or something like that. So he shoots it himself. Yeah, yeah. So Carl Denham is very broadly based on Miriam C. Cooper, and mm-hmm. Miriam C. Cooper was a filmmaker who made the types of film that they talk about Denham making. Um, you know, the the documentaries about uh, you know. Wild world and, and you know yeah. So, yeah the one um grass is the the one that always gets talked about which is now considered a lost film um and that but but that's him right so he's making uh his own um his, he's making a version of himself right mm-hmm. uh so I, I do like that that it's you get the idea that cooper's kind of po- poking fun at himself a little bit but also kind of drawing on his own experiences mm-hmm uh, it's funny because this would get mirrored in the 2005 King Kong by uh, Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that film, of course, Jack Black plays uh, plays um, uh, Carl Denham, and Black specifically based his Denham on Peter Jackson. Right, so he's mm-hmm. playing Denham as Peter Jackson. Right. Yeah. So it's like, and again, it's like, but Jackson's kind of the same way, right? He's a big guy. He's enthusiastic. He wants everybody to have high energy and all that. So it, it, it makes sense. But I, that, that's like I said. So Denim is, is one of my favorite characters. He's my favorite character in the movie because you get the sense that to him, because he's willing to take on all these risks, he expects everyone else to take on that risk too. Yep. Right. And he's like, you know, and they, they, when, when they're on the ship, you know, he eventually, we'll, we'll get to this, but he says, uh, you know, he asked him, you know, uh, uh, did you ever hear of Kong? And he started talking about the legend of Kong and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, well, what if what if what if you what if he's real? And he's like, well, now you know why I brought along those cases of gas bombs. So, <laughs> damn, it's like, hell yeah, it's a, just one more adventure. Let's do it. He goes, I want to do want I want to do something that no one's ever done before. And it's like, damn, the torpedoes in full speed ahead. But because he he's not. A coward, he's not shying away from taking the risk. He's right there with everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. So it, he, he, he's a, he's, it's a very interesting sort of character in that he's very sincere. He tells you exactly what he wants and what he's going to do. And yep. I always appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he's got no fear. And that's it's yeah. really, I mean, hey, if you're going to ask other people to do stuff that's crazy, you should be willing to do it too. I mean, that, especially in 1933, there's probably a lot more people willing to do that than there is now. But yes. uh, I, I do like that about his character very, very much. But, yeah, it's it's interesting, too. And then I started, you know, they get on the ship and um, there's, there's you know, the Driscoll is there and he's barking at all these people to get this on here and get this stowed and put this here and put that there. And Anne kind of creeps up behind him. And he's like waving his arms around and he kind of smacks her. He's like, oh, hey, sorry, but you shouldn't be up here anyway. And they try to, you know, uh, or at least he tries to uh, put himself off as this, you know, tough guy. And I don't like women and they shouldn't be on boats and this and that. And, uh, you know, Anne is just like, you know, hey, I think this is wonderful. This is going to be great. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, basically, it would be better if you weren't around. It's like, right. wow, man, I felt, I felt bad for Anne there. Yeah. And, and it's funny because essentially – Again, Denham said he had to get a, a girl in his picture because that's what Hollywood demanded. 
Well, that's essentially what Cooper and Shodashak have done. Mm-hmm. Right? They put a girl in the picture and added a love angle to it so that it would be more marketable than their documentaries were. So, mm-hmm. again, it's kind of a, an art imitating life situation here. And, you know, th- this is sort of like a 30s meet cute, right? The yeah. big, rough, tough sailor guy and the, uh, you know, the, the, the big eyed, uh, city girl on the big adventure on the boat, right? I've never even been on a boat, you know? So it's, I, I, and you know, it's, and again, it's, um, it, it's, it's the typical sort of thing in most romance stories, right? Where they've got to not be the, they, they don't, they don't immediately fall in love. The, 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 the OTP couple has to, you know, clash at first, right? Mm-hmm. And then one one side softens up to the other, and then, you know, things go their natural course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, but then they, they, they get on, uh, they get going here, and this is something I didn't realize either. I never thought about it, because, of course, in the movie, it only takes a minute or two for you know, I shouldn't say a minute or two, but a few minutes for the scenes on the ship to go by before they get to, you know, their destination, which is, you know, Skull Island. But I never thought, how long of a voyage was this really? But at one point, Anne, I think it's Anne, uh, does make the the statement that, oh, I haven't been in trouble for over, you know, this whole six-week voyage. And I'm like, holy crap, yeah. six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and and you, it's like they're they're really going out there. They're going absolutely away from civilization, and that comes up later mm-hmm. in in a, in a scene that's not mentioned. But I'll talk about that because that's in the in the, the third act. But yeah, it's a very long trip. And one thing that um, and you're right, they don't they don't talk they don't talk too much about the voyage itself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something actually Jackson would expand upon. One of the things I like, and I don't want to talk too much about Jackson, but one thing I do like, because Jackson is the biggest Kong fanboy on the planet, evidently, right? Mm-hmm. That By his own admission. Like, he owns some of the original armatures and stuff that Willis O'Brien used. The One of the things he did was beef up the adventure of the voyage itself, which I liked. Whereas here, the voyage is kind of... You know, they do have, they have to get there. So we do plot exposition, we do character development, we do that sort of thing. So I, and, and it, and it works well, very well for that. You know, we do get some really good scenes, like you said, with, um, with Anne and Charlie the Cook, mm-hmm. who is, uh, again, it's, it's a character from another era, right? You probably couldn't do, yeah. you know, uh, Charlie the Cook now, Victor Wong playing, uh, Charlie, but it is pretty funny. He's like, I go back to China, never see a potato again. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Now that you mention that character, I think, uh, many years later, 30, 30 plus years later, uh, the people that did uh, Johnny Quest were riffing on that character in an episode because there was an Asian guy, Charlie the Cook. Uh, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. But we get then we get some another scene, like you said, with Anne and um, um, oh, oh, and Jack, Jack, Jack right? yeah. And then we get another scene with uh, with with Carl with Denim and Anne. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is, and that leads to the famous scene of the of the uh, when they do the screen test, mm-hmm. right? And so the screen test is, to me, it's a great scene because it it really harkens back, first off, to kind of silent movie acting, right? Because you're, he's just recording without sound, or he's just yeah. recording, not has no dialogue, right? So it's just her emoting, right? So it's that emote to the back of the room sort of situation. Denim's direction is fantastic. You know, 
But oh, yeah. then when Faye Ray lets out that scream, to me, that may that scene, her scream in that scene may be the most iconic scream in a movie ever. Besides mm-hmm. possibly the Wilhelm scream, right? Because that sound clip is so iconic. And I don't I don't like to use that word because I think that word is overused. But sure. if you've got a scream queen scream, that's Fay Ray on the boat right there. I mean, she just lets it lip, you know? And it is, it's fantastic and it sounds so good and it's so, like I said, it, it, to me, that is like the quintessential sound of this movie is Fay Ray screaming. And that is the best one of all of them in this film is that one on the boat. I absolutely love it. And it's, it's just, again, just as effective now as it was, I'm sure, 90 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can only imagine. And, um, you know, speaking of, uh, Fay, uh, I won't get specific, but, uh, as a kid, I didn't notice this because, you know, well, you're just a kid. But as an adult uh, male, uh, I did notice something where I thought, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, why? Like, OK, they say this is a pre-code film, but most pre-code films, there are things that really jump out at me that uh, once the code was enacted, they weren't allowed to do that anymore. And other than some violent scenes with Kong killing some natives, I never really thought about it. Uh, even trying to look for things, but I did look for them. And uh, when Faye's on the boat at one point and she's running around in a certain outfit, um, <clears throat> you can definitely tell uh, there's there's something probably pre-Codian about it that uh, didn't happen afterwards. And I won't say what that is. We can uh, move along here. But I just did uh, notice it, and it did stick out to me. I was just like, yeah, they probably wouldn't let her dress like that uh, if this was post-code. But uh, anyway. <laughs> well, you know, it's all it's also one of those things where, you know, it depends on the cut you're watching, right, and what format mm-hmm. you're watching. And if you grew up watching this film on TV or VHS, you know, it probably doesn't have the same impact. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll, I'll refer you to Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Prin- Princess, Princess Nefertiti, played by Ann Baxter. Okay. There's one dress she's wearing. When you're watching that film on VHS, it's no big deal. You watch that film on DVD or Blu-ray and suddenly <laughs> everything changes. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll let other people look that up. But, uh, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, um, it, it's a let my people go situation, I guess. But in any event, uh, yeah, that is it. it, it yeah, you're right, though. I mean, pre-code normally has certain connotations about it. Right. And this one, yeah. the violence is where the pre-code aspect comes in. But, yeah, there, there's yeah, again, it depends on what format you're watching, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, like you said, they don't other than that screen test and using the ship, you know, and the voyage also. Uh, to basically have her and Jack, you know, fall in love kind of out of the blue um, right before they get to Skull Island. It really isn't much that goes on there. But like you did reference earlier, too, there is that scene where, you know, you have uh, Denim and he's in the, uh, the the captain's quarters there with the captain and Driscoll. And he mentions Kong and the island and, you know, the superstition. And uh, the the captain knows a little bit about it as well, but he just, you know, Kind of thinks it's again just that a superstition where uh, Denim he he's buying in on it and again this is why he wants to go there and film because he thinks he's going to get a shot of this you know giant uh, giant ape which is uh, fantastic. Yeah, and and again it it goes to it goes to everybody's character here. You know, mm-hmm. 
um, because the the captain says or, or Denham says he got it off an old Norwegian ship captain mm-hmm. who that they had picked up uh, one of the natives' canoes that drifted out to sea. There was only one survivor, and he died before they could make it back. And that um, they said, "Well, did the did the Norwegian captain believe it?" He goes, "Well, I believe it." Right. So yep. that that's that's all there is to it, right? To to Driscoll, well, or not to Driscoll, to to Denham, it's like, "Well, I believe it," so that must be it, right? Mm-hmm. So. And but again, and he's and he's not that he he's right there willing. He's an adventurer in his own right. And I do like that the captain, he's an old sea dog, right? He's been around, he's seen and heard <laughs> a lot of things. And we that comes up later when they land, is that hey, maybe you can talk to him, you know, you've picked up a few words over the years, right? So um, you know. The but this this is a scene that is a scene actually where it is one of the things that is very indicative of being nineteen thirty three in that Denim specifically says we may be the first white men to see this, mm-hmm. right? And the, yeah. the implication is, as opposed to an an African, right? Because they're mm-hmm. all they would be they would be black. But to say it in that way is very much the attitude that would have been present in 1933. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. you know, I, we we talk about this on Earth Destruction Collective a lot. We talk about uh, Eastern versus Western, but also different eras. And what was, you know, the norm, whether it was good or bad, it was the norm. And that's why it's there. Right. So you have to take things in their context. And there are certain things in this film that have to be taken in their context, um, whether and and, and if you want to, you know, apply a different criticism onto that, you're certainly welcome to do that. You know, I um, you, you 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 have what people will interpret and then you have what, you know, the filmmakers themselves said was motivation. And you can, you know, find what, what the truth wherever you want it in that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, it's all about context to me. I mean, it's uh, it, it's easy to look at things from many, many years ago and, you know, pick them apart or throw rocks at them or whatever. But again, it's if you weren't there and didn't live in that time, you know, what was socially acceptable uh, and in a lot of cases, not right, but wrong. Uh, it, it's that's just that was again, those were the times. So uh, and it's 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 not it, like this anything really overtly you know terrible in this movie that you would watch it in my opinion and get turned off by it and not want to finish watching it or think it's terrible or anything like that there are certainly other movies where there's way more uh things that would probably do that to most uh, viewers but i feel like this movie even with the the couple of things that you'll hear or see it's it's actually not that bad considering again it was 1933 right yeah yeah i would agree with that yeah, it was pretty tasteful. But uh, so they finally get to the island and they hear the drums. And uh, I love that when they get through the, uh, you know, the, the pea soup fog there to finally be able to see the island. I thought that looked pretty good. You know what I mean? Like, again, the special effects for 1933, you know, there was nothing, you know, that anybody would see now and probably be impressed by. But I thought that was a really good shot there. Right. I mean, that looked oh, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And, and and again, it's they, they talk about that they have to land there on the island. And it, we, we don't know, you know, they, we see the description that it has a, it's, you know, barren cliffs and it's at the one small beach to land on and all this. And, and, but yeah, the reveal of Skull Island through the fog. And what's neat is that that fog that surrounds the island being one of the things that keeps it hidden, that is a, that's become like a constant part of the character of Skull Island. Cause that appears in, 76 Kong that appears in the 05, the 05 Kong that appears in Kong Skull Island. It is an ongoing thing. The idea that natural phenomena keeps the island hidden, whether it's fog or storm or what have you. Right. 
So I do yeah, like I love that. that. Adds to the whole mysterious thing that they're going to this island that's on no map, right? But but they but you know they, they, they've heard legend and rumor and innuendo. Mm-hmm. I do like that a lot. And again, that's it. It just air. It just adds to the overall adventure pulp adventure vibe, which is just is just it's, it's fantastic because at this point you're already on an adventure and you don't even have a giant ape yet. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like you're you're you know probably. What twenty five minutes into the movie, maybe thirty, even close so to it. So they land. They they land at Skull Island. It's like twenty nine minutes. It's just shy of thirty <laughs> minutes into the film. Yes, so like a third of the way to the movie. It's a third of the way there. That's right. And what's funny <laughs> is that um, the the next what I consider the next major waypoint happens exactly fifteen minutes later. And I will mention mm-hmm. it when we get there. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they decide like, hey, we're we're going to go ashore here. Um, and, you know, conventional wisdom, you would think, hey, you know, again, 1933. Hey, let's leave the girl behind. We don't want her to get hurt. Well, Carl Denham's like standing there and Anne's like, oh, I can come ashore, too. Can I? And again, I was you, you, the first time you see this, if you have any kind of sensibilities of that time, you're thinking he's going to say or if it was Driscoll's choice. No, we don't want any girl here screwing it up. You'll get hurt. Stay back on the ship. But Carl Denham's like, of course you're going to come on board. You know, you're going to come ashore with us. Something cool might happen, and I want to film it with you there. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, exactly. Like, I learned a long time ago to keep my my crew close just in case. (laughs) Which makes you wonder what happened that, like the Rhino story, what what is the story where he didn't have an actor, right? Mm Mm-hmm. For some reason, and he needed one, right? It makes you wonder on that. At least it does with me. But um, but they get on there, and they see the Kong ceremony. The, yes. the natives doing this, and it, the, the, this, this is just classic stuff, man. And um, I, I think Denim says it best. He goes, holy mackerel, what a show, you know? And it's um, and it's it is to me, again, this, this is just classic. The music, the chanting, the costumes, all of it is is so it's so ingrained in my memory that it's I, I i just i'm it's just beloved at this point as far as i'm concerned yeah and that is a scene too where again when i'm a kid it means nothing to me i'm just like oh man let's get to the big monster <clears throat> but now looking at it sort of with a critical eye looking for things to you know talk about on top of just the norm that everybody will you know know when they think of kong I'm looking at the girl that's going to be sacrificed, and I'm thinking to myself, is she naked? Yeah, she's basically just wearing the flowers, right? Yeah, it looks to me like she's sitting down, like on her legs, like almost like you would be at like a a, a dojo, like you're a martial arts dojo, right. you know what I mean? And they have like flowers, almost like a lei, like in uh, Hawaii, around her yes. neck, and like kind of around her waistline too i think maybe and the, again i'm just watching a, a a five dollar bin dvd probably of this movie that i bought at like walmart or something now it is on like a 50 60 inch tv whatever it's a pretty big tv and i'm sitting there and i'm looking i'm thinking holy crap i i, I think that girl's naked yeah and i mean <laughs> like i can't believe they had her well, there the, naked <laughs> yeah well but you know it does make sense i mean in the story though but Sure, the thing yeah. is, is that now, again, you talk about when you're watching this as a kid versus watching it now, uh, a couple of things. First off, obviously, this is a scene that modern critics will point to and say that it's it's in poor taste. Again, 
you can you can understand uh, again you you can look at this film with a modern uh, point of view or you can you know read what Cooper and Chodeshak what their inspiration was and what their intent was and you can make your own decisions on that. Um, personally, I, I tend to side more with with Cooper on this one if I'm going to be honest. Sure. Where he talked about one of the, the that his main understanding and his theme of the film is the the primitive world clashing with the modern world and that simply that the primitive world could not survive that fight. And so this is the, the what he called, you know, the primitive world. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they, he says that Denham says that, that they, they, they've, uh, they've been at, they've been isolated for so long that they have no memory of this great civilization that built the wall. Right. So that now mm-hmm. they've, they've gone back to being a, a more primitive uh, culture. And again, it's, it's not, there's, there's no, um, there's no judgment out of this. It's just stated as fact for a guy that's traveled all over the world to all sorts of, you know, exotic locales like denim. It's not a judgment. It's just a statement, right? Sure. And so that, and that's what the thing here. The other thing is for me is that again, you're talking about the sacrifice, the horror of this, right? This girl is going to be put in the other side of that wall, either killed and eaten by Kong or left to die on this other side of the island, which is filled with dinosaurs. <laughs> and they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Right? So it's like, this is this is gruesome stuff when you think about it. So you talk about, you know, pre-code. It's like, hey, let's sacrifice some women. You know? Mm. Cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they ever, I don't think they do. Uh, I'll, uh, to my recollection, they never say at any point how often they do these sacrifices. So I don't know if this is a weekly thing, a monthly thing, a a lunar thing. I don't know, maybe once a year. I I don't know. Or maybe just, you know, if they hear Kong beating his chest out in the jungle, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, he's close. We better get somebody ready. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, you know, once a year. I mean, either way, it's a, you know, uh, sacrificing people is not a good thing. But uh, it's just, I don't know how often they do that because, you know, they, they actually get interrupted here. Their ceremony gets interrupted, so they aren't able to sacrifice this woman. But they try to – I like how the chieftain tries to barter with them and say, hey, we'll give you like five or six of our chicks for your one chick. Because, <laughs> you know, they yeah. think, you know, Anne kind of stands out because she's a blonde and not a brunette. Yeah. And they think maybe that will appease Kong more and maybe he'll leave them alone or something for like – maybe instead of every month a girl dying – Maybe it'll be a year till he comes back, they think. You know, you don't know what yeah. they're thinking, just that Anne would be a different or better sacrifice than what they've been offering up to Kong, right? Yeah, sure. And that's, uh, first off, one of my brother's favorite lines. It's from uh, from Jack. Yeah, blondes are scarce around here, you know. <laughs> yes, he does say that. Um <laughs> The but yeah, and it's it's the the golden woman, right? And then this is yeah. another aspect of the film that gets criticized by by modern critics, uh, which I again I'll let I'll let view, I'll let listeners make their own judgment on that. But yeah, if if you've never seen a fair haired, fair skinned woman before, she would stand out, right? Mm-hmm. If if sure. you're you're used to seeing you know uh, darker complexions and darker hair colors and all that. So, you know, and that, and that's, um, especially again, at this point, it, it's implied that, you know, maybe, um, these, these, well, no, they, they even say that, that the only people they had, it was one of their canoes that drifted out. There's never been, you know, um, you know, Western, Westerners that have set foot on this island that anyone has known, right? So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, um, but that whole bit where, uh, you know, Noble Johnson sees him and he gets, uh, uh, just stalks right up to him and everybody's very, you know, upset. It's like, no, no, tell him we're friends. Tell him we're friends. You know, you, you can talk, talk to him, Captain. You know, it's like, <laughs> smooth this over for me, will you? So, uh, yeah, it's, and again, it's, uh, I do like that, that, um, you know, again, Denim is not like say, you know, he doesn't say the, the one guy tries to run away. And and they they put a stop to that. It's like no, nope, mm-hmm. not doing that. And but again, Denim's not really um, plussed by this, right? No, he's no. like, okay, well, just let him know. We'll come back and we're friends. You know, it's like we. He's like, it's like this. This is just seems like just something else that you know. Hey, this will be a great part of the picture, right? We've got mm-hmm. this this uh, tribe of of natives, and they have all this this. Uh, this amazing ceremony that they're doing and all this for their monster God. It's like, all this is going to go in the picture. Think about all the people that are going to be, that are going to want to see all this exotic stuff. Right. So again, whatever, whatever you think his motivation is, he's, he's true to it is he's true to it. Right. He, he is not uh, backing down from this. And uh, even Anne is not really afraid, right? She wants to get up and see it too. Cause again, I think she's, she's part of this whole thing. She's bought into into Denim's uh, line of thinking at this stage, right? She's she's on mm-hmm. board. Yeah, the only time I will say she acts like a damsel in distress is when Kong is around her. And uh, yeah. let's be honest, I don't care if you're a small little blonde-haired woman or you're the size of Andre the Giant. If King Kong was, like, going to grab you and slap you around or eat you or step on you, you'd I'd be a damsel in distress, too. Right. Yeah, I'd be so, screaming probably just as loud as Feyre. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, to try to say, you know, she doesn't, you know, uh, hold her own in this movie, I think is not true. I think she does. Again, yeah, again, does. absolutely. But uh, yeah. so they, they go back to the ship. And, of course, you know, uh, those native dudes, they, they, they really want to sacrifice her. So yeah. they take a little boat out there and creep on board and grab her and take off. And then. I think it might be Charlie the cook there that – what does he do, find – I think she might tear off one of their necklaces or something, and he finds it's, it? It's, yeah, it's it's their bracelet. And so they tear off her bracelet – or excuse me, Anne is struggling with them, and they lose one of their bracelets, and he finds a native bracelet, starts, and he raises the alarm, mm-hmm. right? And so now now they got to re-land in the middle of the night. Yeah. You know? And um, so so this is the next waypoint. So 45 minutes, Anne is tied to the altar. Right, mm-hmm. so 15 minutes after arriving at Skull Island, we've escalated to, <laughs> hey guys, let's go get go get that blonde chick off the boat because we're getting this done tonight. You know, mm-hmm. it's, <laughs> it's happening. Uh, yeah, and um, so Anne tied to the altar. Things escalate quickly as they do because here comes Khan, mm-hmm. and oh man, when the, the this payoff of King Kong is so friggin' fantastic. You know, smashing his way through the forest. And it's like, oh, my, okay, you know what? You said the eighth wonder of the world. You said this was a giant ape. This ain't some dude in an ape suit. No offense to, uh, you know, uh, to Kenny Baker. Not Kenny mm-hmm. Baker. Um, I'm blanking on his name now. The guy that played uh, Kong in, in 76. No no offense oh, to yeah. anybody out there wearing an ape suit. This is not a dude in an ape suit. And oh. I, I love a guy, a good a guy in an ape suit. I love a bad guy in an ape suit. But. Oh man, this appearance of Kong, this is one of the greatest debut, like, you know, debut scenes of all time in any film for any character, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, so these natives, they have their own, like, little village, and then, like, right outside the doors, they have, like, this uh, sacrificial altar type thing where there's, like, two stone pillars, and then they put the girl in the middle, and then there are these, like, uh, ropes to tie around her, uh, uh, you know, wrists, and then they go through, and there's, like, these things on the side of them to kind of, like, you know, uh, lock it in place so she can't get away, which I, I do love how, you know, when Kong shows up, he's like, Wow, we got a a blonde chick here. Cool. And then he's like, "Oh, this old routine again." And he knows how to just undo the things on her arms. Like, yes, like it's fantastic. And of course, all the natives are on top of the wall they have built with this gigantic door that uh, Kong is. Uh, you know, it's it's Kong sized doors, and they have a you know barred. But they're at the top watching this happen, and their eyes are like wide, like, "Oh crap, here he comes!" And you know, he's pushing trees down left and right. What a great scene that is, especially you know, like we've talked about. You know, Willis O'Brien, you know, a lot of people think about Ray Harryhausen with stop motion. And again, rightly so. He's he's the guy that probably did the most of it, the best of it. But, you know, Willis O'Brien was the precursor that did it. And I, I think he did great with Kong in this, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, O'Brien is I mean, the stuff that he did, he he his career was not as long or as varied as uh, as Harryhausen. And Harryhausen was actually O'Brien's protege. Mm-hmm. Right. So he would work with O'Brien later on, uh, and then before he started doing his own films. But here, the just immediately the um, the 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 smooth animation, the attention to detail, the little things in the expressions, and the and and that everything with Kong is immediately the illusion of life, right? Mm-hmm. And it works so well. The the one thing that it's it's amazing too. Even the criticisms can get hand waved right because one of the criticisms is like oh well because of the the fur you can see where he's manipulating it it's like that's eh, just windy it's blowing his fur around mm-hmm. you know even that sort of works right yeah. but uh, the other thing that's nice about this is that we get a um we get a great uh um, composite shot right so you've got in the foreground you've got Anne on the altar right mm-hmm. and then you've got kong in the midground as a as the effect, and then Anne when she when she slips out the restraints and falls off the altar, then Kong immediately picks her up, and now she's part of the she's part of the effect. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a little transition thing there, right? So it's oh, Harryhausen would famously do this in his films where he invented the sandwich technique, right? Where he had a background plate, an effects plate, and then a foreground plate, and he would shoot them all together so he could composite. You know, a live action background, live action actors, and then animated creatures, right? Well, here, this, this is a similar thing. We've composited together a live action plate of Fay Ray up there on the altar, and then we've got the, um, you know, the, the, the effects plate of Kong, and then it's a very smooth transition where, yes, we know how it was done, but imagine the first time you're watching this, you don't think about the fact that that's not actually Fay Ray that he grabbed, right? Mm-hmm. It's a model, yeah. Ray, but it's still it, it it is composited and assembled very very nicely. Yeah, I think you know again, 1933, they didn't have a lot to work with, but what they did have to work with, I thought worked very well and as good as it possibly could. So I can't fault a, a film again that's 90 years old for <laughs> something like that. It's just to me again, I think this uh, film still uh, looks great 
even on a big screen TV you know, on a DVD compared to, like I said, an old VHS or, you know, an old copy that was on TV when we were kids or something like that. I, I still think it, it looks really good and should stand up to pretty much any scrutiny there. But I do like, too, how then, you know, Kong starts to kind of walk off with Anne into the jungle, going back to his, you know, crib. And uh, right at that moment is when <laughs> Denim and Driscoll and all these other guys show up just in time to kind of see him walking away with her. Uh, Driscoll's eyes are like as big as, you know, saucers. He's like, holy crap, look at this thing. Because, you know, at that yeah. point, maybe he still didn't believe, right? Well, I don't know that maybe – I think he believed. I don't think that he quite was prepared for it, right? Mm. There, there's there's big apes, and then there's a giant ape, right? <laughs> <laughs> all that all that stuff with the um, with, with the gate and all the guys moving the, the barricade off and all that. I love how it all comes together very quickly, right? Yeah. You know, they immediately organize a search party. No one is not part of it, right? Because yeah. you got to save the girl, right? Because mm-hmm. because it's 1933. You still did like, no, well, we're going in there. We don't know what we're going to find, but we're going in there after. I'm not sure what we're going to do to this giant ape, you know, but we're going to do it, right? So I do like that. And I do like that uh, it's always the question of why did they build a giant door, uh huh. They didn't want him to come not in. Just, yeah, not just a small <laughs> door, right? Uh, well, obviously, Kong's gotten out before, and they've had to kind of, you know, corral him back in. So that's why, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, that's why you build a giant gate there. It's, 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 it's a gate because it needs to be a gate. Just, just roll with it, okay, guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, he goes out into the jungle, and this is where. Like, they go crazy throwing all these dinosaurs into this jungle Mm -hmm. here. And I love this. And, again, as a kid, I loved it, and I still love it as an adult, too. Probably not quite as much as I do when I was a kid, but I still love it because, you know, I don't remember when I was a kid ever seeing another movie uh, at that young of an age uh, with dinosaurs in it. So this was, like, the coolest thing ever. You just saw dinosaurs in, like, books and stuff like that at the library, right? Yeah, it it was either this or – like um, you know, you'd get the uh, the the lizards with the stuff glued on them, like in uh, uh, um, hundred one million one million BC, you know. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Or you'd actually get you know one million years BC with uh, you know Ray Harryhausen doing the dinosaurs, but that that's uh, that's a little bit later. Or Valley mm-hmm. Guanji also Ray Harryhausen. Oh yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, but I love this too because they go out, they find the Stegosaurus, and it mm-hmm. charges at him, and they gas it, and they shoot it. And, um, you know, uh, what do you think this is? Uh, some, something from the dinosaur family, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, no guys. One seems, no one seems that. A giant ape, they're in awe of. Dinosaurs are like, yeah, okay. They just kind of accept it, right? I've, I've heard of them. <laughs> and, uh, but, it's, but, no, but nobody seems all that surprised that dinosaurs are still alive 65 million years after the fact. Um the other thing, of course, is that all the dinosaurs are super aggressive. Yep. Right? The Brontosaurus is the most pissed off Brontosaurus in the history of film, and I love him. He's mm. so angry. He's yeah. picking guys up and throwing them around, right? <laughs> it's like, what did they do to him? Because I've seen, I've seen this. It's like, you know, a Brontosaurus is a, a, uh, an herbivore. It's right? a plant eater, yeah, not, a, a, not eater. a flesh eater. Okay. But uh, and I but you know I'm willing here here's this okay there mm-hmm. are some herbivores in extreme situations have been known to 
convert to carn, con, um, you know, uh, to become carnivores in some scenarios out of extreme mm-hmm. need. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, some herbivores are extremely dangerous, especially when they get aggressive or cornered. I'm thinking of an elephant or a hippopotamus are extremely dangerous and they are herbivores, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're, if you're going to tell me, yeah, they, they run across a brontosaurus and it gets angry and it charges at him and stuff. No problem. Grabbing guys out of trees and eating them seems a bridge too far for a brontosaurus, but I love it because it's Skull Island and everything on Skull Island is trying to kill you at all times. <laughs> One of my, I am, and I'm not even making a joke. One of my favorite bits in Kong Skull Island is that everything on Skull Island is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Skull Island is this fantastic setting where, yes, it's home to King Kong. It's also home to an entire menagerie of monsters, both flora and fauna, that will kill you. And mm-hmm. the, the fact that even the, you know, supposedly benevolent er- herbivores are violent and vicious just sells how dangerous a place this is. And Kong is the top of the food chain. So it's the worst possible place you can imagine with predators and uh, behemoths from hundreds of millions of years of time and King Kong's top of the heap. That puts him over as the baddest thing on the planet right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to touch this guy. And I'd love that. So it's like, and, and the, it again, it's the, the modern world clashing with the primitive world, right? Yeah. We got guns and gas bombs. Well, you know what? Those do a lot of good when you're, you're, you're running through the, the shallows of the water and you're, you're, you're on the run from a, uh, a giant, uh, sauropod that's going to stomp you flat, <laughs> right? Does that do you mm-hmm. a lot of good from, you know, uh, it's, and it's, it's, and they're all realized so well. The Stegosaurus, one thing that both Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen were really good at and excelled at was showing the death throes of a monster, right? Mm. When a monster is dying, those last death rattles. The Stegosaurus with his thagomizer, that's actually what the spiky end of a tail of a Stegosaurus (laughs) is called, is a thagomizer. I'm not even making that up. But his thagomizer rattling and stuff when they finally, he finally is uh, uh, expiring. There's death throws there. (laughs) Yeah, those death throws are fantastic. And it makes it real, right? It makes it like an animal. The, the, um, you know, the, one of the, I'm going to jump ahead slightly, but, you know, what what goes down to me is one of the greatest monster battles of all time, which is Godzilla versus the T or Godzilla King Kong versus the T-Rex, mm-hmm. right? Which is the direct inspiration for King Kong versus Godzilla, of course. Yeah. But uh, the, the T-Rex it's, you know, when it's fighting and fighting and fighting, when Kong is breaking its jaw, right. Or mm-hmm. even the little move when Kong is grappling with them and you just see it trying to bend its head to take a bite out of them. And it can <laughs> yeah. bend its head. It's like because Kong, as a primate, can think, can reason. He's not a reptile that only works on instinct. And it's like that's what makes him the top of the food chain is the fact that he can think, he can reason, right? And and the other the other creatures on this island can't do that. The other monsters on the island, right? Yep. So it's it 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 is a it that whole sequence on Skull Island is just. Boom, 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 one hit after another of just 
worse and worse things happening to, <laughs> to the guy that they're trying to get to Anne. And, um, you know, the, the, the very famous scene, of course, the log bridge. Mm, love it. And, and the log bridge, of course, is iconic. As I mentioned, if you watch the 1932 Most Dangerous Game, you get to see the log bridge in a different context. It doesn't get dumped down in that one. Um, <laughs> but famously, as cool as the log bridge is, and as gruesome, you want to talk about pre-code Hollywood, Kong is shaking the sailors, the crew, <laughs> off the bridge. As they fall, we see their bodies fall to the ground and their screams cut off as they smack into the earth. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, that's right. That is hardcore. That is hardcore <laughs> right there. Yeah. Now, what's even crazier? And most people know this, so I'm not coming out here like, hey, I got a scoop for you. So in the original script, at the bottom of that pit is a group of spiders and a insect with, like, octopus arms and a reptile-type monster that come and eat the crew. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So there are two stories to this. One story, the one that I've heard the most often, and going back to even when I was a kid, was that RKO took a look at this and said, absolutely not. This is too gruesome, even by what we're allowed to show here in, you know, but pre-code. And they ordered the scene cut. And any footage that may or may not have survived, there's been some test shots of the models and such, was all destroyed. That is the theory that I've seen posited in many different places. The alternate one that I've seen from interviews with Cooper and others was that they cut the scene very early and nothing was ever shot because they felt that it brought the film to a halt from a pacing and story standpoint. The idea that pausing to show the the crew, none of whom are really important characters at this point, being right. massacred by these monsters at the bottom of a pit, did not add anything to the story and slowed things down to the point that Cooper decided to cut it. Which one of these is true, I don't think anybody at this point knows, considering how long ago these decisions were made. But the, the spider pit has gotten this rarefied air of mystery around it, right? And and this idea of, the, of these horrible creatures at the bottom of this pit, right? Mm -hmm. I've said his name a couple of times, but Peter Jackson, essentially because he wanted to, right, funded and produced – with his team at Weta, a recreation of the spider pit mm -hmm. using stop-motion animation. Yeah. If you go on your Kong 2005 DVD, it's called The Mystery of the Spider Pit, I believe is what it's called. And they actually have, it's about five minutes, about five, six minutes, a recreation of this scene, including where the crew is running and they run basically into a Styracosaurus. Styracosaurus uh, related to the Triceratops, but he's got more horns on the top of his, his uh, frill. Mm -hmm. Styracosaurus chases them to the log bridge, and then Kong comes back. That's why, supposedly, they can't go back the way they came when Kong starts shaking it, because the Styracosaurus is on the other side. There does exist a promotional shot of Kong with the log bridge where you see the Styracosaurus on the far right. Mm -hmm. So that piece part did exist at one point. Uh, and then from there, like I said, it, it plays out as we described with the Kong shaking the, the uh, sailors off and then the sailors that survive on the bottom being, uh, you know, killed by these strange creatures that come out. 
the little <laughs> lizard thing that climbs up the vine and menaces Jack is is appears in that scene and is uh, kind of representative of the types of things that were going to be in the pit. Odd creatures like that. So, uh, yeah, it is, again, it's, it's pretty rough the way we get it now. It was supposed to be much, much worse. So just again, <laughs> always remember. <laughs> right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think the, uh, the, the T-Rex scene is then right then after that, like you said, that is such an iconic scene, a great scene in the movie. And, uh, I'll just, you know, you covered it pretty good, but I'll just add one thing that, uh, Kong would have been a heck of a collegiate wrestler because he's got a good single leg takedown, man. Oh, yeah. He shoots that single leg and down goes the. <laughs> and I got to give the T-Rex credit. He gets dumped on his head like three or four times, and he doesn't have a big brain, but he keeps getting up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's too dumb to know when to stay down, I guess. Right. The, the, <laughs> other, the other thing that's great about that, now, of course, now, because we air quotes up to the mic, know that dinosaurs' tails were normally kept straight out and were used for balance because they walked more like birds, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't walk the way that we thought dinosaurs walked for however many decades, right? The classic image of the upright uh, sauropod, like we get, or uh, yeah, sauropod, or theropod, whichever it is, Mm -hmm. Uh, like we get here with the T-Rex, right? With his tail dragging on the ground. That said, when one of the, to me, one of the greatest bits of animation that Willis O'Brien ever did, after... Kong throws the T-Rex. The T-Rex clambers up to his feet. He has his back to the camera, and he's he's eyeing Kong, and his tail is just slithering back and forth. And it's like, oh, it doesn't need to be there, other than it's the character of the T-Rex. It doesn't serve any purpose in the story, but O'Brien wants his character to look alive, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. think about the complexity of you know waggling that tail back and forth. And it's like that was a huge effort on O'Brien's part for something that doesn't really add anything to the narrative, but makes that character seem that much more alive. And that's that's like the legacy of O'Brien and later Harryhausen, right? The mm-hmm. idea that a, a creature, a monster, um, you know, a mythological, as they're called in the credits of uh, Clash of the Titans. They're characters too. Just because they're not, they're, they're brought to life, not through a performance, but through an effect, they're still characters. And if you treat them like characters, they make a impact on the audience. And again, we've talked about Godzilla a little bit. That's something that Toho would, and Subaraya would totally run with in the Godzilla series was you take monsters and treat them as characters. Mm-hmm. Now you have an emotional response to them. And the crew that made Kong knew that back in 33, which is why Kong is such an important and influential film in the monster genre, is because we can have all the monsters we want that are just heavies, that are just creatures, and we have no connection to them. And so when they die, we don't care. Here, we have a connection to them. Are we sad that the T-Rex dies? Not really, but we understand him as a threat to Kong because of how he's brought to life. And so when Kong beats him, we were like, yeah, that's right. You know, we're, we're, we're invested in the outcome of that because Kong is a character and the T-Rex is a character. They're not just random beasties, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And now that Kong has destroyed that bridge, 
uh, Carl Denham's on the one side of it, and our buddy Jack, you know, who climbed down into this little cave on a vine, uh, and then uh, stabbed Kong with his knife a couple of times, which, you know, doesn't sound like much, but, you know, take a pin and stick it into your finger. It, it doesn't feel very nice. Uh, but... And another great bit from O'Brien there. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jack stabs him with the knife. Kong is like, ow, what? And he's like licking his finger. It's little <laughs> character bits for Kong that we, again, he, yes, he's the heavy. He's the monster. He's got the girl. But we also feel for him a little bit, right? Because we understand yeah. oh, that hurt. <laughs> yeah, they, they humanize him by doing that for sure. Yeah. And then so, you know, Jack basically says as Kong, you know, grabs and takes off to go back to his house. And he says, like, you know, hey, go get more guys. I'm going to follow uh, Kong. And if I can't rescue Ann, I'll signal you to let you know where we're at out here in the jungle. And he's like, all right, cool. Well, he does follow him back to his uh, pad here. And there's this crazy... Uh, you know, Wiki calls it an elasmosaurus. It's almost like a snake-like creature, but it does have little arms and legs, but it has a long tail. And I really like that fight, and I think O'Brien does great there with it wrapping its tail around Kong, choking him. I think that's a really good scene there, too, inside the cave. Yeah, I agree. The lighting is very dramatic in there, too, because it's very dark inside versus the, the brightly lit fight with the T-Rex. The the Elasmosaurus, I always thought of it like a plesiosaurus, right? Like the Loch Ness yeah. Monster is supposed to be a plesiosaurus. Um, and this is the inspiration in uh, for the 77 Kong where he fights the giant snake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're right. The the choking is the really the, the highlight of this because you can see exactly the point in which the Elasmosaurus manages to get its grip tight because of Kong's immediate reaction, mm-hmm. right? And, again, it's really wonderful and very characterful work from uh, O'Brien, but also the idea that with with Kong and the T-Rex, it's two full-size things, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm showing my – I'm manipulating my hands up to the microphone for everybody to see what I'm doing. <laughs> with Kong and the Elasmosaurus, now you've got one model and another one that's, like, wrapped around it. So it's like a different type of approach, right? It's a different form mm-hmm. of how you're manipulating these to make them work together. And I think I think you're right. I mean, that, it coming after the T Rex, it's a little underrated, but it is very cool. And again, with with Anne, the entire time that Anne is here, she is trying to escape, right? Mm-hmm. One yeah. the later depictions of Kong, both um, seventy six and uh, two thousand five, have this character. Obviously, it's still Anne in the Jackson Kong. It's Dewan, I guess, in uh, the De Laurentiis Kong. Have her get a form of sympathy for Kong over the course of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fei Ray, not so much. Not so much. She never <laughs> feels any sympathy for Kong, and all she wants to do is escape. You said that uh, that she holds up well as a heroine. I think given the, her lack of options for trying to fight, trying to escape is really the best option for sure. her. And that's that's the most she can do. And it's like every chance she gets, she tries to get out of there, but Kong's like, nope, you know, (laughs) you're coming with me. You're my pretty thing that I like. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, he well, uh, after that fight, it's like literally, you know, only a minute later. And there's then a pteranodon, which is one of my favorite dinosaurs. I love uh, the the, the flying ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a, a fight scene there. And while, you know, Kong is trying to take him out. And it's like, you know, you feel like, oh, that's such a like a wimpy kind of thing versus this giant, you know, gorilla. But if, you know, you know, it's got a long beak and claws and stuff, it could, you know, put an eye out or something like that. So it's, you know, not not some kind of, you know, wimpy thing that Kong can just, you know, 
thunderclap and knock out of the sky here. Yeah. But at that that point is when, uh, you know, Jack uh, shows up and him and Anne start to kind of get away a little bit by climbing down a vine. But, you know, Kong sees it and starts pulling it back up. And then the two of them just, I don't know if they jump off or fall off uh, down into the water. And they kind of get away. And that pisses Kong off. Yeah. And you know, it's like it's not going to be good. No. No, and before that, so after the Elasmosaurus, before the Pteranodon, Kong, play, you know, t- tearing at Anne's dress. Oh, yeah, And yeah. pulling her dress off and smelling it. Because it's like, you know, there's probably a good chance Kong's, I'm willing to bet, never felt silk before. Mm-hmm. And has never smelt perfume, right? Mm-hmm. Or or the, you know, what, what, a, what a non-native girl might smell like, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, it's little things like that that we... Whether we sympathize with him or not, it humanizes him and it gives him character. Mm-hmm. And it's this under this you know the the completely fake old Arabian proverb at the front about that uh, you know a beast did look upon beauty and from that day he was as one dead. So this idea that he's just completely enchanted by her, right? Yeah. To the point that he'll literally fight every single monster that comes that might try to harm her because that's the thing that that he is fallen for. But those little scenes, um, O'Brien would build on those in, again, like Mighty Joe Young, where we get the really deep character scenes with Joe where he's locked up in the uh, cellar underneath the theater, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the, uh, the, the, the emotive aspects here. So Kong investigating Anne, it's, it's kind of – it is famous because it is – and it's also one of the scenes that was cut when the film was re-released – in the years uh, following its initial release, because she isn't fairly undressed by the time he's done with her, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of see her undergarments at that point when you see the shot of her in his hand, the the regular uh, scale shot. But I do always like that. Just and and the soundtrack is very amusing. At mm-hmm. that, as he's like sniffing, did it, did it, you know, as he's uh, uh, <laughs> investigating. <her>. But yes, <laughs> yeah, and tickling her because again, he's he's you know, it's it's his thing. Uh, but yeah, the, so Jack and, and Anne make their escape. Uh, clearly they're, uh, um, you know, it's, it's the water on Skull Island must work different because they're okay. They jump off that giant, uh, precipice, you know, and they're okay when they hit the water. Um, I do like that, like you said, Kong is not happy about this. And they are running just as fast as they can, and Kong is just right on their tail. Yeah. Right? And <laughs> Denim has everybody prepared. The captain, the captain is the most pragmatic person in this film because, you know, he, uh, Denim tells him that, you know, Driscoll went after her and everybody else's Jagas will never see either of them ever again. <laughs> That's the first and immediate statement. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, he's a realist. <laughs> you get the idea that the captain's seen some stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, he's, a salt, like I said, he's a salty old sea dog. He's seen some stuff, you know? A grizzled veteran is what they say. <laughs> yeah, grizzled young vet. But uh, but Kong comes crashing through the gates. Oh boy! And another just amazing scene. Kong at the gates there, and it's just like, oh my damn! You know, yeah. it's like that. I don't know that you could do that scene any better. And they've tried. They tried two different times, and I don't know that you can ever top O'Brien's Kong smashing through the gates onto the beach. It's just. It's it's cinematic, it's um it's 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 just so well realized and so visualized that you can't help again. But you're but you're 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 all in. You're completely invested at this point. 
Yeah, when you see him push through that, oh, man. And you know the crap's about to hit the fan because he's so pissed. He's Nothing's going to get in his way, and nothing's going to stop him from getting Anne. So he literally just starts smashing the crap out of this village, eating people, uh, smashing them, yep. stepping on them, smashing their huts. He is going I- insane. So I kind of feel bad for these people in this village now that yeah. I think about it. All right. these guys did is come there, rile them up, and piss Kong off, and now he destroyed their whole village. You know, I'm I'm going to – earlier this year, my, my daughter is taking a film criticism class, and her instructor asked me because they, they – he found out he, I had a giant monster podcast, and he said, oh, can you come and talk about monsters to the class? And I'm like, really? You actually want me to do this? But we did, and uh, one of the things I talked about was in King Kong and how you can look at King Kong and put a, a, a modern, you know, put, a, put it through a modern lens, and it's like, you know, okay. So we've got this guy. He's doing okay. He's kind of a big deal. On his island, right? And he's got some people that he lives with, and, you know, they, they have a – it may not be great, but they have their own kind of tenuous situation, right, that's pretty stable. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a group of white people show up, screw the whole thing up, and get all of them killed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. I mean, there's, it's kind of the nose, but, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm sure a couple of them survive, but a lot of them get killed. Like, there's a part right. where – there's a bunch of dudes on this like um this like kind of uh it almost looks like the stuff you rig up when you're you know on the working on on the side of a house or something like, like scaffold. that. Scaffold. Scaffold, yeah, and there's a bunch of them on there throwing spears like and they they seem to be not just annoying him, but maybe hurting Kong a bit. So he turns around and raises his fist in the air and smashes the whole thing. And there's a lot of dudes on there, man, and you know they're all dead. Absolutely. And all the people getting like you said crushed underfoot and eaten and again a lot of these scenes got cut when the film was re-released and were not restored until much much later Mm -hmm. and uh you know this is again one of the things that is um you talk about kong being a giant monster most giant monsters don't interact that much with people because Mm -hmm. they're so giant here he's just giant enough that the idea of him interacting is very very scary Mm -hmm. right and those, yeah. I mean, again, they're 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 almost quaint now because they're ninety years old. But a native with literally in between Kong's teeth is such a gruesome concept. Can you imagine? <laughs> just imagine John and Jane Q. Public film goer trying to you know get a get a break at the at the at the uh, Nickelodeon or whatever from the you know their their the, the problems of their life. And seeing these poor dudes getting crushed underfoot and eaten by a giant ape. What are you even thinking at that point? I just can't, I, I would love to know that because to me it's like, I see this kid, I'm like, I'm a, I see this film as a kid, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. But I, I, I don't know, it, it's just different sensibilities, right? I mean, now we wouldn't think anything of it. But then it's like, this was just innovative, revolutionary stuff, and it's great. And the thing about this, and I, I, it is it that those images of Kong eating people are so ingrained in people's memory. It literally became a joke on The Simpsons. It is one of my favorite Treehouse of Horror segments. It's King Homer. It is a great spoof of King Kong as told by Grandpa, with Marge playing the role of Fay Ray, 
and unsurprisingly, Homer playing the role of King Kong. And Mr. Burns is uh, Carl Denham, which is funny. And uh, um, Smithers is Jack Driscoll, and he has the great line. I think semen and women don't mix. Oh, we know what you think, Mr. Smithers. But um, <laughs> so the, uh, the 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 natives, one of the natives is Lenny, who, you know, is one of the guys that works with Homer at the power mm-hmm. plant. And oh, Homer yeah. picks him up, and he's like, he's got him in his mouth. Hey, Homer, quit eating me. well i'll tell you what i don't remember seeing those parts when i saw this when i was a kid so they mustn't have shown them on tv well that's the thing is that the 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 cut scenes and restoration i mean a lot of that happened um it's it's depending on which one that you had because a lot of those were cut and then they were restored over the years, right, through mm-hmm. – uh, they would find ones that um, were released to art houses or other theaters overseas and stuff, and, and they would do that. But, again, a lot of times on TV, they would just show the older cut one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And part of that was to also to cut the film down in length because it is, you know, at full length, it's 100 minutes, right? So that's a little bit long for a two-hour TV slot. So if you're going to cut it down, that they would cut out the violent scenes like that for sure. Yeah. Well, this leads to, you know, a confrontation on the beach where Denim and the other guys, you know, they, they chuck the, uh, the the gas bombs that you mentioned earlier at Kong and it does knock them out. So yeah. um, they, you know, <laughs> I don't know if they float them on a raft out to the, the boat. That, or well, what that's they... what Denim says. Like, we'll get get some, what do you say, get get some, some, um, some tools and some rigging. We'll build a big raft. So here's my question. Okay. They knock them out with gas bombs. Okay, yeah. I'm willing to accept that because we've seen the gas bombs take out the Stegosaurus. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> As you said earlier, Anne says something along the lines of, like, the six weeks that they've been traveling. <laughs> yep. How do they keep him sedated for six-plus weeks? I imagine they, they whoever drew the shortest straw <clears throat> took the, 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 the box full of gas bombs out there and had to be like on the raft of Kong as they towed it for six weeks and just every every few hours leak a little bit of gas out into his nose. I don't yeah. know. I thought of that too. I thought, wait a minute, but I thought, you know what? I'm not asking that question. Nope. Let's just the next thing you know. Boom, snap your fingers, you're in New York City. You're in New York. Now, the thing is, again, and, I, and that's not a criticism on my point. I, it, it, to me, it's funny, but it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. That's no. not the story. The story nope. is that they, they, they take this guy, they take Kong, and they take, they, they take him out of his element. Technology has beaten him, and they take him to New York. Now, that said, the, this question has been asked enough times that it's addressed in the remakes, how they do this, right? So it, at mm-hmm. least somebody was thinking along these lines. I'm sure Cooper was too, but just said, eh, it's not important. Let's keep the story moving. And I and I like that call. Another absolutely great line here from Denim. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. You'll, a few months from now, you'll see it up in lights in Broadway. <laughs> Why, the whole world will pay to see this. No chains will ever hold that. We'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Why, in a few months, it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Ka- 
Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, which is just, that to me is one of the greatest lines in cinematic history. Yeah, I, I, I love that. No, no questions asked. There's so many great lines in that. But uh, I, I, the, the, I've, I've never had an opportunity in my life to yell, we're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. But one of these days, <laughs> one of these days, that's going to come up. Now, uh, <laughs> now, when they get to New York, mm-hmm. you said there's not much humor. It's actually funny. There are little snippets of humor in this film. Yeah. The, the hustle and bustle of the New York hoi polloi when they're going into the theater is yeah. some of the absolute funniest stuff to me. The, the, uh, the, the older woman saying, I can't sit this close to the screen. It'll hurt my eyes. It's like, Oh, it's not a moving picture, ma'am. You know, <laughs> it's like they walked in from like a Marx brothers film or something. Right. It's, uh-huh. it's like a different set of characters here. It's like, Oh, doesn't Mr. Denham make those delightful films with his elephants and tigers and things? It's like, it's more in a, <laughs> more along the lines of a personal appearance, man. <laughs> <laughs> I do like too how think about this. You know, Denim gave that guy at the beginning of the movie a dollar for, you know, like a nickel or a penny, you know, a piece of fruit, and the guy was overjoyed. Yeah. One of the people going in says, This better be good. I paid twenty bucks for these tickets. So think about that. Bucks. Yeah. Holy crap. I'm gonna have to break out my inflation calculator here. Or and Professor Allen. <laughs> Well, you know, here you go. Let's go to let's go to let's go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and see if we can do the inflation calculator calculator live here. Mm-hmm. So let's say twenty dollars in. Let's just say this film came out. When did this film come out? When was it released in 1933? What month do we know? March. March. So let's say in March of 1933. There mm-hmm. we go, 1933, and let's, the latest we go, we can do, let's do November, that's the last one, I think, November of 2023. Uh, okay, let's see. Okay, so, $20 in March of 1933 has the same buying power as $488. <laughs> $500, that's basically. Bad. That's not bad. You get some of these concerts for these, uh, you know, the, these top acts, and they're they're doing four digits. That's not to, of course, you don't know where their seats are. They could be in the back, you know. Well, and you know what the other thing was too is I don't remember if the guy says twenty bucks a ticket or twenty bucks for these tickets, which would be these, these, these tickets cost me twenty bucks. Still, five hundred dollars yes. to go see, you know, a guy that normally makes movies, right? Yeah, because at this point they, he didn't say, "Oh, hey, I captured a giant ape and brought it back here." It was really just like. A big mystery that he just, you know, threw this out there saying, yeah. hey, I, I something's you got to come see this eighth wonder of the world or whatever. Nobody knew other than the people, obviously, that were on the voyage, you know, yeah. what was going on. Yep, absolutely. The the mm. other great line is when the people are seat, are getting uh, seated and uh, the one woman goes, what is this? Anyway, the guy goes, I hear it's a kind of a gorilla when there's another guy like climbing over her. <laughs> we got enough of them in New York. <laughs> I love that. As a, as a native New Yorker, that line always has popped me. That is mm-hmm. the most New York thing in the world, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know what? Speaking of that, I just remembered, too, something I totally forgot to say about. In the beginning of the movie, when Denim said about getting a girl before he left to go find Anne, he did say to all the guys that were saying, oh, it's too dangerous for a girl. He has a line, and I thought, yeah, he's exactly right. 
And basically, it would be just as dangerous for a single girl to be walking around New York City as to be in one of my pictures. And I thought, he's not yes. lying there. No, obviously, being in New York as a, as a single girl did have, does, and still does have its its dangers. But at least, I guess Denim's theory is, well, at least here, you know, we'll be, we'll be able to take care of her, right? Yeah, you know? <laughs> I think that's what he's thinking, too. But, yeah, so, you know, everybody files in, and, you know, he basically is backstage and says to Jack and, uh, you know, and, you know, they're all there, and they're a couple now and getting married and all this stuff. And, you know, the paparazzi's there, and then he's like, all right, yep. you know, I'll call you guys in to take pictures when we get out there and, you know, reveal everything. And, you know, he's, he's, he's the showman, and he's there in his tuxedo, and he goes out, and he basically says to everybody, like, hey, you know, this great adventure, and, you know, here's the people that are responsible for it, you know, mostly, you know, and Darrow, and then uh, and here's, you know, Jack. He was on the voyage as well. He's going to be her husband. And, you know, then they, uh, they reveal Kong, and, of course, yes. all the people are like, holy crap, and that's a great yep. scene. Yeah, and it's, again, another amazing line, and a line that stuck with me, and is even more poignant, again, if you look at this film from a modern point of view, looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Denim says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew, but now he comes to civilization merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. That line of he was a king and a god in the world he knew, but now he comes to civilization merely a captive. There's so much in that line. Mm-hmm. There's so much in it. When especially looking back on this, that you're taking, you know, and, and again, Kong is, yes, he's a giant ape. He's an animal, but he's, he's a character. He obviously can think and reason because we've seen it happen. We've mm-hmm. seen it happen, and we took him from where he his natural environment, his natural habitat, we literally put him in chains, put him on a stage for people to gawk at. And and then we have the gall to be surprised when things go wrong. You know? <laughs> it's it's the hubris of man. Yeah. Right? The man with their technology thinks that they can impose their will on the natural world. This is a theme that Gareth Edwards brings up in his um, in Godzilla, um, uh, the the first monster vs. Godzilla, Godzilla 2019. Mm-hmm. That there is you you don't impose nature imposes its will. You don't impose your will on nature, and that's that's here, right? There is there is only one inevitable result for mm-hmm. for this course of action. And yeah, the, the, everyone is gawking and 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 you know, you know uh, staring at him and all that. And and then we bring out the photographers because again, this seems like a good idea to antagonize him. <laughs> yeah, really. And it doesn't take long, right, for them to antagonize no. him, and that's it. Yeah, and and don't worry. The my another line. Shout out again to my brother, and I got to give I got to give my brother and my dad a huge shout out over on my brother's show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes. I think they did like a four hour show on King Kong. So if you're if if you like ours, this episode, please, Bots, Bugs, and Babes. Um, you can find it anywhere that you find uh, like on twotruefreaks.com and all the podcatchers. They did, I think, for this for the 85th anniversary of Kong, they did a huge retro, like scene by scene breakdown retrospective. Please go check that out. But a line my brother has always loved, those chains are made of chrome steel. That would suggest that they're just normal steel that's really shiny. Isn't that what chrome steel would be, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, but, uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> but Kong, yeah, Kong breaks out. It's panic. It's a panic at the theater. 
and uh, Kong smashing through the wall and suddenly on Broadway. It's like it, when Kong smashes through the gates and is destroying the village, that's that's a spectacle. This is now this is Kong in the middle of Midtown friggin Manhattan. And suddenly the giant monster genre is born right here. Right. Mm -hmm. Kong smashing his way through a city. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, they there was there is a scene in the 1925 version of The Lost World of the giant brontosaurus rampaging through the city. It is not nearly as dramatic. It is not nearly as exciting. And it is not nearly as well put together as this sequence. And it this sequence is still great. 90 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I was, uh, you know, again, as a kid, you're thinking, oh, cool. This is so cool. He's, you know, wrecking stuff and he, he wrecks a train, which is an elevated train, which is fantastic. Great yep. scene. And then, you know, basically he's disoriented. He, this is all new to him. He went from being in a jungle to this. So obviously he yes. would kind of go nuts and, and cause a lot of destruction just out of like panic and not knowing what's going on. Cause Sure. I remember thinking, like, watching this, thinking, like, well, if he's looking for Anne, why is he just, you know, destroying all this random stuff? And I thought, you know, just, you know, in prep for this uh, episode, I thought, yeah, think about it. If you're taken out of your element and put into something this crazy and antagonized and everything, anybody would probably do that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, most of us will lose our temper if we if we miss lunch, you know, yeah. let alone everything that Kong's been through. Um, this, this rampage, a couple of things. So the scene of Kong grabbing the girl, mm -hmm. realizing it's not Anne and dropping her to her death. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh <laughs> that's a bit hardcore. Um, that is a scene that was, um, that was cut for the re-releases, the original re-releases. Um, there is, I think a scene of Kong eating a guy in New York that is also cut uh, from the re-releases. Kong destroying the train. couple of things about that. First off, the story goes that uh, Miriam C. Cooper had Kong destroy a train because Cooper did not like trains. That when he was in the city, he was forced to use the trains, and they made him late. So he, he didn't like them and thus had Kong destroy one, which is, which is great. That's um, awesome. <laughs> one of um, a very famous scene, of course, about uh, 21 years after this, in the original Gojira, Godzilla destroys a train. It's not an elevated train, but he steps on the rail, and the train crashes into his foot, and then he picks up the train, and he puts it in his mouth, and he shakes it. There is the scene, <laughs> just like in King Kong, when Kong picks up the train, we see the passengers inside looking out the window and seeing Kong. We get an almost identical shot in Godzilla, where the passengers are looking out at Godzilla, before he drops the train car. Uh, so, again, a direct homage. The other one, of course, is way back um, when the natives are having their ceremony. There's a very similar sort of ceremony of prayer to the monster god Gojira instead of the monster god Kong, uh, one of several um, you know, allusions to Kong in that film. Um, but, yeah, that rampage is, is just great. And, again, He's it's 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 all in trying to find Anne. That's all he's looking for. And soon enough, he grabs her. And I do love that. I do love that whole sequence because uh, Driscoll takes Anne to their hotel and is like, OK, it's 
we, we got to be, we got to watch out, you know, and then he's literally outside the window. <laughs> Looking in. <laughs> and reaching in. It's like, well, you timed that perfect. And then no sooner does Kong knock, knock down Driscoll, grab Anne, and climb up the roof, then here comes Denim saying, he's right outside. Right? So everything's <laughs> happening all at once here. Everybody's on the ball, but they're all just a second late. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the final act, it, it does go very quickly. Um, and it's, again, it's a very famous, you know, uh, Kong, you know, he's got the uh, Anne. And he climbs up the Empire State Building, which, you know, at that time was probably the largest building in the United States, maybe one of the largest in the world, I would imagine. I, right? it, I believe it was the largest building in the world at that time. When the Empire State Building was being built, the Chrysler Building was also being built. And the two of them were essentially in a competition to see which would be the tallest building. Um, the Empire, in fact, you actually do see the Chrysler Building in the background. The, the, when Kong is standing on the, on the, on the spire of the Empire State Building, you can see it kind of to his, um, uh, like southeast of where Kong is on the screen. You can see the Chrysler Building. But when he's climbing up, it's like a monolith, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing else around it anywhere near as tall as it. And it's, it's such a striking scene of seeing Kong climb this, uh, in extreme, um, background, essentially, just to get the size and scale of the Empire State Building. And then you see, you know, but again, when he's, as he's getting near the top, you also see in very small on the screen, the planes, the biplanes coming for him. And it's all, it's very, it's, it's an interesting take because it does show the size and scale of it. Kong is the biggest thing, right? He's this biggest, unbelievably big thing. Well, here he is climbing the Empire State Building and look how small Kong is compared to this. Look at this. This great tower that we've built into the sky with our technology, right? Yeah. This is again the, the the modern world versus the primitive world once again. Yeah, and somehow you know, uh, I think it's Driscoll. Maybe he gets the idea of uh, planes because, of course, yep. the cops are like, "How can we even get up there?" And <laughs> they 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 manage to scramble you know a squadron of planes fully equipped with machine guns in about five minutes. And get them over to the Empire State Building. And, yep. Yeah. You know, again, very, very famous scene with the planes attacking Kong. And at first, it doesn't seem like their guns are doing very much, but then slowly but surely, they're having an effect on him. And, you know, he, uh, he puts Anne down and, uh, he does smash one of the planes, but the rest of them just, uh, keep on blasting away. And then, you know, they do that far shot when he falls and you see him hitting the building, yeah. the side of the building as he's going down. And you, you do, you know, at that point feel sorry for him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the entire time on there, it's like, what, what can he do at that point? He didn't ask to come here. Mm-hmm. He didn't ask to leave Skull Island, get put on a boat, get put on Broadway. He didn't ask for any of this, and you're attacking him, right? Mm-hmm. He's, at, at this point, yes, Kong is a, he's a bad dude, right? He, he is, he is, he's as tough as they come. He's, we've seen him crush people, eat people, right? <laughs> Derail a train, drop a girl to her death. He's not a, he's not squeaky clean, but he didn't ask for this. He's, he's been put into a situation that it's like, what, what, what did you want me to do? You're treating yeah. me like a monster. And so I'm going to behave like a monster, yeah. right? And I, as soon as the plane starts shooting, you're like, oh, you feel so bad for him. It's like, there's no way you're getting out of this. There's no way out of this situation, Kong. 
You know, there's there's no way you can say, you know what, I'm going to climb down or something. You're, this is it. If this is Khan going out on his own terms, right? He's going to mm-hmm. fight to the end, and it's like you feel so bad for him because O'Brien and Cooper and everyone else have given us so much character for Kong that we feel for him, right? And that mm-hmm. we feel the sympathy for him. And then, as you said, him falling and hitting the, the sides of the building, it's just, it's it's so harsh. It's so harsh, right? You, mm. you, you know, and again, and this is not a friendly guy. This is a, a bad dude, but he didn't deserve this. You know, no. nobody deserved what he had to go through just because he was different. You know, uh, Eji Subaraya, of course, has a famous quote, and I'm going to look it up because I want to get it exactly right here, um, uh, mm-hmm. about about monsters, right, and why monsters can't always, can't can't live with us, right? Mm-hmm. So, trying to find this quote. Um, let me vamp for a second here. Yes, monsters are tragic beings. They're born too tall, too strong, too heavy. They're not evil by choice. That is their tragedy. All right? So mm-hmm. that's Ishiro Honda. That's the creator of Godzilla who says that, yeah. right? Now, he was talking about Rodan in that context, but it's the same idea, right? That they're, that it's not their fault that they're this way, but but it means that they can't, coexist with humanity right? yeah and so the primitive mm-hmm. world cannot coexist with the modern world and so the modern world by their force of their technology will crush the primitive world and so thus kong is riddled with bullets that you know he can't understand what that is and then falls to the kong to the 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 asphalt below mm-hmm. yeah that's and that again famous scene here it's it's tough to watch it really is you know it's a you uh, you 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 get to really think about it. It's like, like you said, he didn't ask to be brought there. Um, you know, he he did you know smash a bunch of stuff and everything. But again, he was all like, he didn't even know where he was at and what was going on. And you know, how do you know he was thinking those you know, reporters were trying to hurt Anne and stuff like that? So you yeah. know, it is yeah, it's it's tough. You do feel for him, but yeah, very mm-hmm. famous scene. And then you know, uh, Carl Denham with his uh, very super famous line there at the very oh, yeah. end, there, right? Well, Denim, the airplanes got him. Oh, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Uh-huh. And it's, it is that, again, there's no other way to end this. It's too perfect because it was beauty. It was out of his devotion, love, whatever you want to call it, for Anne, that he did all this, right? Because uh-huh. Con- yeah. Denim even, even says that, you know, um, he says, uh, you know, when they're on the beach, because they say, because uh, he says, um, Engelhorn says, no chains will ever hold that. And Denim says, we'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. So Khan mm-hmm. could have been cowed and put on stage and charge people, you know, everyone would pay money to see him and, you know, leer at him and jeer at him. But he didn't. He chose to fight. He stood up for himself and and. and broke his chains to go get the thing that he was devoted to. That's how strong his bond was. The thought that they were hurting him was enough for him to go on a rampage when apparently he's been relatively docile for how many weeks since they gassed him on the beach. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it, it is, it is just, it's wonderful. It's tragic. It's poignant. It's beautiful. I love it so much. And it, and, and again, it's, 
and I and I don't want to I don't want to get too uh I don't want to freestyle too much here, but you know, most of us most of us understand that, you know, we we think we're we're tough and we're big and bad and we're independent, but most of us have that one person in our life that they they own us, right? They know that they can that our devotion to them will make us do crazy or dangerous things, right? <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm going to necessarily you know, be able to climb the Empire State Building, but there is someone that knows that I'll do all sorts of stuff because of my level of devotion to her, right? Uh-huh. So it, it's something that we can identify with. And again, as as primates ourselves, and I talk about this in a destruction directive, as primates ourselves, we always feel more sympathy for a primate monster than we do a reptile or an insect or anything else. Because we look at them and say, you know, they're not so different from us, are they? You mm-hmm. know, they walk upright. They have, uh, you know, they have warm blood. They have hair. They have five, uh, you know, five fingers on each hand and uh, five toes on each foot. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're they're not so different, you and I, right? Whereas a mm-hmm. reptile or an insect, you're like that's the other. That's the thing that's different than us. So by definition, we feel more for somebody like Khan. You know, yep. we, we could sympathize with his plight. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah, this is one of those movies that, again, like I said, I can watch this, and it's not even some super 4K Ultra Edition or whatever. It's just a, it's just literally <laughs> you open the DVD box, and it's just the DVD in there. I don't even know if there's any kind of like you know scene selection paperwork or something on the inside of it. It was a very cheap copy, right. and it's great. I'm sure it's streaming in places. I'm sure it's probably behind a paywall too, but. Yeah, I'm sure it's streaming in places yep. where you can find it too, you know, uh, but yeah, you can go grab a cheap copy. I'm sure if you looked on eBay right now, you could probably get a copy for 10 bucks. You know, it's, it's something you have to see yep. if you haven't, which I'm sure most people have, but it's also something you need to own too. You need to own this if you're a fan of, yes. you know, yeah. uh, monster. I movies. have a, yeah, I have a box set that came out, whew, had to be at least 15 years ago, and it's got, um, Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young as a box oh. set, which is fantastic, and they're beautiful. But yeah, there, there's I think there's a 4K even of uh, of King Kong out there. I know they did the 4K restorations, so there must be a 4K out there of it. But you know, I grew up watching this movie on VHS, right? For I want to say it was hmm, the 60th anniversary they put it out on VHS. It was this oversized VHS box, and it had I remember. It was not that it was oversized like height or um, uh, or le- length, but the depth, right? Where because it had a little uh, front on it, and you could press Kong's chest, and he would roar. Oh, cool! Right? And I always thought that was neat when I was like thirteen, right? When that came out, and I remember my friend Bob. Shout out to uh, Bob Hansen. Um, uh, he thought that was the coolest thing ever, and I remember coming over, he coming over to my house and just like hee hee and pressing Cog's chest and making him roar. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't know if my dad still has that VHS. I don't think I inherited that one. Dad probably still has that VHS as much as Dad loves King Kong, so it's probably still at my parents' house somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking on eBay right now. You can get a copy for five bucks. Yeah, um, there's perfect. a yeah, there's a King Kong Son of Kong uh, DVD double feature for. Uh, 380 plus 450 shipping. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> you you can you can afford. Most people uh, can afford to buy this movie and yeah, uh, and and own it. And you, you really should. Absolutely, you got you got to have this. It's too, it it's it's too classic. It's too classic not to own this. 
You know, that this is especially if you're a monster fan at all, this needs to be in your in your library. No question. Not, not even a uh not not even a not even a, 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 a niggle of doubt to me. If you're a yep. monster fan, you have to have King Kong in your collection. Yep, gotta own it. So all right, well this was a lot of fun, man. I'm, I'm glad we were able to squeeze this one in uh, in the anniversary year here, man. This was a lot of fun. You know, thanks for joining me, my friend. I appreciate this. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and excuse to watch King Kong and to uh, uh, and, and to talk about it and uh, really give this this film again. Maybe not the four hours my dad and my brother did, but just to uh, <laughs> really dig into it and uh, and just really give this film some love because I think this film everybody it's one of the things everyone knows it's great, but sometimes people forget just how great it is until you really think about it and and reexamine it. So mm-hmm. thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you bet, man. And then uh, if anybody's uh, looking to find you and what you do out there, my friend, where can they look? So if you are not tired of hearing me talk about giant monsters, uh, you can go check me out on my, my main podcast, which is called Earth Destruction Directive. It's a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju, of course, is Japanese giant monsters. So we take a look at all sorts of Japanese giant monsters from uh, Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, anything kind of in between, plus more obscure stuff. We look at movies, TV shows, video games, comic books, toys, anything that falls into that genre. So you can find Earth Destruction Directive at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find it anywhere that um, you find your podcast. On any podcatcher, we'll be able to have Earth Destruction Directive. In addition, I also am one of the hosts on The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is a horror podcast, primarily horror film. I co-host that with my brother, Jason Giaconetti. I've talked about him a few times on this show. And uh, Two True Freaks OG, Chris Honeywell, and the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler. Again, that can be found at twotruefreaks.com or on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, with Jason and the hero, I also do an occasional wrestling podcast called Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there's a podcast on the Internet about professional wrestling. Uh, so again, you can find that at, uh, both again, twotrueweeks.com or on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube. If you search for Earth Destruction Directive, I do mirror all my episodes of Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube. We also do some exclusive content, do some, uh, some posts on the, um, on the community feed. I'll do some unboxings and some other stuff on there as well as I get new Blu-rays or DVDs in the mail, that kind of thing. Hoping to get some more of that up in the new year, but you know how you know a podcaster is lying is because their lips are moving. Uh, in addition, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Luke EDD <laughs> for Earth Destruction Directive. You can find me on Twitter at or X or whatever we're supposed to call it now at L Jacone at L J A C O N E. And if you're on Discord, we do have a Discord. It is a Two True Freaks Discord, and there's an Earth Destruction Directive channel. I believe the link is on twotruefreaks.com. You can get to the Discord that way uh, if you'd like to chat. The Discord's not super active. That's probably my fault because I'm not super active on it. But it is it this newfangled Discord stuff. The kids do this. I don't know. I'm 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 a crotchety old man. I don't understand that. I understand email <laughs> better than anyway. So, but if if any of those sound like uh, you'd like to get in touch, you're more than welcome to. So please check them out. Yeah, and definitely I will tell people you know to follow you on social media and subscribe on you know a podcatcher, but also like you said the YouTube channel as well. Like uh, I know I have a lot of commute. So I do listen to a ton of podcasts, but it also when I'm at home doing work, uh, whether it's podcast prep or editing or just, you know, whatever, uh, I will uh, just throw on YouTube on my TV 
And like you said, all your episodes are on there. And then uh, cool stuff like everybody loves unboxing vids. Like, come on, man. Everybody loves those, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And those are things you can all find on that uh, YouTube channel as well. So definitely check that out. But uh, that's going to wrap us up. Uh, you know, like we said, 90 years, King Kong, can't beat it, get it, own it, love it. And then uh, once again, thanks for uh, being on, Luke. I really appreciate it, buddy. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Billy, again. And uh, and and to have me on, always a pleasure to be on, you know, whether we were talking comics or uh or Mario Bava or, or monsters or whatever, but to talk about King Kong, how could I, how could I possibly turn that down? <laughs> all right. So yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap everything up here and uh, we're going to jump out of here and I'll be back in a minute to wrap things up. The first actor considered for the role of Jack in this movie was Joel McRae, but it was Bruce Cabot who eventually was cast. It was the first featured role Bruce Cabot ever played in a film. In Faye Ray's autobiography, she says Gene Harlow, was the actress the producers tried to hire for the part of Anne, but Marion C. Cooper couldn't get Jean Harlow. MGM, where Harlow was under contract, wouldn't loan her out, not for a role in a film generally dismissed as an ambitious but ordinary adventure story. But it was because they wanted Jean Harlow that Faye, who was a brunette, had to wear a blonde wig for this movie. Marion C. Cooper told her he had always envisioned Anne as a blonde. Okay, that wraps up this episode, everybody, and 2023. I want to thank Luke for being on the show. always love talking big monsters and comic books with Luke. You know, he's got a pretty busy schedule, or else I'd have him on a lot more often. But, you know, again, thanks for him uh, coming on the show, and thanks for everybody for all the support in 2023. I really appreciate it, and, you know, we'll see what uh, happens in 2024. Happy New Year, everybody.